Amen. Thank you, choir. Uh, hardly need a sermon after the message of that song, but you're going to get one anyway, and it's going to be good for you. I, all of a sudden, I'm thinking of taking fish oil tablets. Hope, hopefully better than that. Um, we have been asking questions, God questions, the last month at church here. Uh, they are significant and deep and difficult questions. And we are trying to push the answers as far as God's word, the scriptures, will allow us. But some of these questions do not have a final answer. Um, the question for today is this. Why Christianity? Among all the spiritual faith traditions, among all the spiritual paths that are possible, what is it about Christianity that is unique, that is the way we call it? Um, 70 years ago, in Great Britain, uh, there was a conference of scholars, some very smart people, gathered at Oxford University in the southeast of England to ask exactly this question. What is unique about Christianity? It was a comparative religion conference, comparing all the different faiths and asking what makes one tradition unique or special. Uh, this group of scholars began eliminating possibilities when it came to Christianity. Is it the incarnation that makes Christianity unique? The fact that we believe that Jesus Christ was divine, came to earth, was enfleshed in a body like us? They scratched that one off the list because there are uh, other spiritualities that um, have the gods or a god coming down and, you know, coming around in the midst of human beings in human form. So scratch that one on the list, off the list for what makes Christianity absolutely unique. Then they started talking about the resurrection, the fact that we believe our Lord was not only crucified on the cross, but rose again on the third day to live. And once again, there are other myths, there are other spiritualities, there are other traditions that speak of the dead being raised and coming back to life, so they scratched that one off the list. There was a man who was teaching at Oxford at the time by the name of C.S. Lewis who wandered into this conference at this point in the discussion. He wrote the book, Mere Christianity, uh, that some of us, many of us read back in January. C.S. Lewis wanders into this conference, and people are, you know, kind of getting a little bit excited, and the discussion is getting heated, and uh, he asks this question. What's all the rumpus about? I put this on the screen just so I could say rumpus with a clean conscience. <laughs> It's the vocabulary word for the week. Okay, so what's all the excitement going on? And his colleagues filled him in. We're trying to find out what, if anything, is actually unique about Christianity. And C.S. Lewis said this. Oh, that's easy. It's grace. A one-word answer to this hours and hours of debate of really smart, clever, well-informed people. What makes Christianity unique? What makes Christianity unique? Grace. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every fiber of our fallen humanity. Every other spiritual tradition has something that you must do. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, where you really need to watch everything that you do the Jewish law to keep the covenant, the Muslim 
code of law, the five pillars of Islam, each of these offers a way to live right and earn divine or cosmic favor. Only Christianity uniquely dares to make God's love unconditional. Does it seem too easy? It should feel a little uncomfortable. Christianity says God's love is a free gift, something you can't earn, and this gift has a name. Acts 4 verse 12 puts it this way. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given by which we must, by which we can be saved. Grace has a name, and the name is Jesus. That was pretty good, but one more time. Grace has a name, and it is This is not to say that other religions and other faith traditions don't have some really good things about them. It is not to say that there are other spiritualities from which we as Christians, professing Christians, might even stand to learn and benefit a little bit. In the Jewish tradition, have you ever been to a Jewish Seder? The Passover meal, in which the story of freedom from slavery is remembered and celebrated. Different cups are drunk, different foods are eaten. The story is remembered. God's covenant promises are recalled. And at the center of this old, old story is the blood of an innocent lamb, The liquid painted over the doorpost, the angel of death passes over, the people are saved. But a messianic Jew, a Jesus-following Jew, will say that no matter how great the memory of this true old story, it is still missing something. It's missing the connection that Jesus of Nazareth is the one true Passover lamb to save us all once and for all. It's not to diss on the Old Testament. It's not to diss on the history of what God has done in the past. It's just to say that until we know Jesus and unwrap the gift of God's grace, it's incomplete. There is only grace in Jesus. There are some profound and true things in Hinduism. Uh, Just a year ago, my wife Sarah and I and her son Will traveled to India Uh, with a group called Mission India that does awesome work there. And uh, there are 1.3 billion people, right, in a landmass significantly smaller than the United States. Unbelievable. Like 80% of the population is vegetarian. Not because there's no meat to eat, but because there's a profound religious respect for all living things that have blood and the breath of life. I mean, right, that's taking a spiritual commitment pretty seriously if you will never eat meat. Um, On one particular morning, uh, we gathered, I think around 5.30 in the morning, on the banks of the Ganges River, the holy water source in India. Mother Ganges, they call it. And uh, on this particular morning, it was a special holiday for the worship of the sun. And on this morning, not just 10,000, but tens and tens and tens of thousands of people were gathered to worship the sun as it came up. And, like, this was a striking experience. I mean, it was awesome in the way, like, a stadium full of people is awesome, just the mass of humanity. But it was also awesomely sad and hopeless because this entire 
group of people, this entire faith tradition, is worshiping not the creator of all things, but created things. They're worshiping literally the sun and literally the water and not the one who spoke them into being. And beyond that, in the Hindu faith, there is the law of karma, which basically teaches you reap what you sow. You get what you deserve. So if you live a good life, you are reincarnate as something slightly better. If you live a poor life, you come back as something worse. And around and around and around it goes, and there is no escape because there is no grace. I learned something that day about, I think, the proper respect and reverence for nature, but I left that day just profoundly, deeply missing and needing grace. In the Buddhist tradition, there is an awesome commitment to meditation and mindfulness. This word is increasingly popular in our culture. Mindfulness, like shutting everything down, being quiet, learning how to sit with yourself, and remembering what's what, remembering who you are and your place in the larger scheme of things. Like, as a Christian, I can totally affirm this. There's a 2,000-year tradition of Christians meditating in the presence of God and becoming more aware of the presence of God and what our little lives are. Like, that is a good practice. However, the goal of much Eastern meditation is to lose yourself and to lose your identity the way a drop of water loses itself in the vast ocean. Christianity is not about you losing consciousness or losing yourself. It's about finding your true self by God's grace. It's about losing your old life, absolutely, and finding a redeemed and transformed and better life through the gift of grace. The Muslim tradition has this going for it. It probably has the clearest discipleship path under the sun. There are five things that every follower of Islam knows they must do. There's a statement of faith that is repeated many times daily. There is no God but God. We affirm that. And his prophet is Muhammad. We don't affirm that part. Right? Very clear statement of faith, however. There's a commitment to pray five times a day, putting many of us Christians to shame the commitment to prayer. There is a mandatory giving of alms. We like to encourage tithing in Islam. That is not optional. There is fasting during the month of Ramadan, and there is a once-in-a-life pilgrimage to Mecca. And if you do those five things, according to the Islamic tradition, it is possible to earn the favor of Allah. Some mornings I wake up, and it's a little hard for me to figure out what God's will is that day. Like, after a lot of, ask a lot of questions. Seek the Holy Spirit. I mean, there are some very clear things I'm supposed to be doing every day, right? But in the Islamic tradition, for everybody, there are five things. I'm a little bit jealous. But there is no idea that apart from our human achievement, we might undeservedly have the favor of God simply fall on our life just because that's the kind of God God is, and his heart is overflowing with love. Grace is unique to the Christian tradition. There's also the materialist point of view. Of all the faith traditions right now, probably most of us are 
uh, most highly tempted to think and believe this way. Like, most of us have stuff in the western suburbs. We have decent stuff. We have good stuff. Thank you very much. And the ardent materialist is simply focused on the here and now. Not living in a fantasy world, refusing to, you know, get lost in non-reality, being fiercely realistic about what's what, and wanting to make a difference right here and right now. I affirm all of that. But if this material world is all there is, if this stuff, if these atoms, if what we see with our eyes, if what science can put under a microscope or see with a telescope, if that's all there is, there's no room for forgiveness or the invisible mystery of grace. So there is much to admire as we look at the landscape of human spirituality and religious life. But there is only one place, brothers and sisters, where you can find grace. Why Christianity, of all the paths? Because only the way of Jesus opens up the true path to the heart of God. Jesus, who came, as the scripture says, full of grace and truth. Grace, grace, God's grace, as the choir just sang. At the heart of our faith is the death of an innocent man. To share forgiveness freely for those who are guilty. At the heart of our faith is the resurrection of a perfect man who was put cold and dead in a rocky tomb. And by God's power... And the gift of his grace came back to life to release people like you and me to freedom and a life with no more guilt and shame. Grace, it's the last and best word in Christianity. It can take away everything else, any other belief, doctrine, vocabulary. If you could only have one word, for followers, for Christ, it's that. Grace. Is it really this easy to be a believer? Is it really this easy to follow Jesus? Just, just grace? Well, yes. And no. Most of these hard questions that we ask have a pretty deep paradox if you really push it far enough. Grace is from God, 100% by God, from God, because of God. But grace, God intends, has a necessary complement. If you receive a really awesome gift, even if you receive a, a junky gift, what do you say? Thanks. Or at least a, eh, thanks. But if you receive a really awesome gift, I mean, for a little while, it's like, what? Like beyond speech. And then you start muttering, Oh, what? Thank you so much. We even bust into other languages when really, right? Gracias, merci beaucoup, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like our own language can't contain us when something really great happens. The Christian faith is all about grace, but for grace to be completed and fulfilled, it needs the necessary companion and complement of gratitude to complete the circuit and tell God and to remind us, yes, we really received this, and I believe it to my toes. 
This, friends, is the greatest comfort that you can have as a believer, that you actually believe what you say you believe. Sometimes we have our intellectual doubts. We don't have it figured out. It causes us to be a little, like, shaky. But if we are thankful, it is incredible confirmation that what God did for us in Jesus Christ is true. Have you ever had a day where you are just moaning and grumbling and complaining about how rotten your life is? Not talking about depression here uh, or mental illness. Just a lousy day or a lousy week. Oh, why does this keep happening to me? And then you have a spiritual epiphany some moment that, oh my goodness, God has done everything for me in Jesus Christ. And it's like the sun comes out over the circumstances of your life and you see them in a whole new way. Like, that is gratitude. That kind of realization and shift of spirit and attitude is only possible because you know and have tasted grace. If that's ever happened to you, be encouraged. You actually believe. Have you ever felt sorry for yourself, just wallowing in self-pity? Oh, my job doesn't pay me enough. My mom always liked my older brother more than me. <laughs> like, there's tons of stuff we can just feel sorry for ourselves about, <laughs> right? Truly. Thankfully for me, my mom did not like my older brother better than me. <laughs> Hope you're watching on live stream. All right. But if you've ever been wallowing in self-pity and then realized, you know what? It actually doesn't matter what other people think of me because God has this incredibly high opinion of me that he gave his own flesh and blood to love me. So keep talking. Whatever. Call me an idiot. God loves me. Like that only experiencing grace and having that reflex of gratitude can account for a reaction like that. If you have ever really wanted something, like in your flesh, you just wanted to buy something, just wanted to have something, just wanted to do something that you knew would make you feel good, eh, it might be right or wrong, probably wrong. And then you realized, you know what? Having that, laying out that kind of money would not give God pleasure. This would be about giving myself pleasure and not... And actually, let me check. God's pleasure matters more to me than my own pleasure. If you've ever had a moment like that, be encouraged that like grace is sinking into you and that gratitude is doing its good work. None of us has a perfect track record along these lines, okay? But if it's ever happened to you even once, that is God's grace working in your blood and in your bones. Grace is free, but the life of gratitude, the response of gratitude, that costs everything. It might cost you early morning time because that's when God wants you to commune with him. It might cost you dollars and cents because you're living generously. And maybe God leads you to do something where you have less rather than more. Being grateful can really cost you. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you embarrassment. You might be cruising on a train and the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and is like, hey, you should say something to that person across the aisle. And you're like, God, I want to talk to them. And the Holy Spirit is like, I want you to talk to them. And you're like, okay, but if I look like an idiot, yep, it's my fault. Okay. Grace, 100% free. 
Living a life full of gratitude may cost you everything. Brothers and sisters, it is worth it. Uh, there is a story on our denominational website uh, where people kind of blog and write stories this week about a little nine-year-old boy from Sheldon, Iowa. Uh, he goes to a little Christian school there. One Monday morning, he was on a backyard swing, swinging higher, higher, you know, pumping harder, harder like a kid does. And his little hands let go of the chains, and he took a massive trip off the swing, crash-landed, broke, broke, broke both of his arms. So he had a bad week. Have you ever broken one arm? I mean, it's hard to sleep. This kid broke both arms. Like, he's not sleeping. I mean, his brother is waiting on him hand and foot. People are writing funny messages on his cast. It's not all bad, but it's pretty bad. A week from Monday, he goes back to school for the first time. And this little guy, I mean, he's pretty exhausted. He makes it through the morning, through lunch hour. Afternoon recess comes, and this poor little kid is so tired that he trots out to recess, looks at the playground, and just can't do it. He lays himself down on the edge of the playground. <laughs> right? Arms in the air. After school, he's re reporting this story to his mom and his grandma who are there at his house. And his mom says, did anyone see you? And the nine-year-old says, my friend saw me. And the mom asks, did they do anything? And he says, yes, they came over, they found me, and then they lay down beside me on the ground for the whole recess. Isn't that awesome? Jesus said, no greater love has anyone than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. I don't know what they're teaching at this little Christian school in Sheldon, Iowa, but these nine-year-old kids, like, have the flavor of grace, right? Because for a nine-year-old to do that, I mean, the other kids are looking at them. Why are you laying on the ground, too? Why are you doing that? We don't even like him. I mean, these kids risk their little nine-year-old reputations just to be with their buddy. Like, that is grace and gratitude at work. Here's what I know. Sometime during your life this week, God is going to ask you, you, to do something like these little nine-year-olds did. There's going to be a moment, I don't know what it is, it might be at home, it might be at work, where there's some opportunity to live your gratitude. And it's going to feel like a ding. It's going to feel like someone's, you know, sandpapering on your mind a little bit. But wouldn't it be awesome if person by person we said... I'm so grateful, God. I'll do that. In fact, let me go first. In just a moment, we're coming to this table. This is the table of grace. It is the table of thanksgiving, the table where we taste and see and remember how vast God's love is, that he became one of us and that he bled and died for us on the cross and came to life again so that we could be free and thankful and grateful people. Now, it might be a little quiet while we're doing this, but if your heart is overflowing with joy and thanksgiving, that would be right on. Like, we're going to sing a little bit. They're not going to be the most raucous songs, but if you feel thanksgiving welling up, and in your heart you want to be like high-fiving God the whole time, that would be right on. Grace and gratitude. That's what the Christian life is all about. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, sometimes we sing to you that you have paid it all, and we believe that that is true. Your grace is what it's all about. Remind us now, right here and right now, as we taste and see just how great your kindness really is. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you will rekindle in our hearts the spark of gratitude and let us cooperate with you in fanning that spark into a fire that heats up our lives and our surroundings. God, it all starts with you. It all ends with you. It's all for you. In the meantime, we want all good things to bounce straight back up to you out of gratitude for Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen.